Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Today's story begins in the summer of 1744, when the government of South Carolina was shocked by the news that two Native American men of the Nachi tribe had murdered several Catawba Indians in cold blood. Fearing a general Indian war, the government interceded and tried to maintain peace between the two tribes while hunting down the murderers. This dramatic story has all the elements of a primetime detective series, but it hasn't been included in any mainstream histories of early South Carolina. Today, we'll start at the beginning of the story and follow the trail of a forgotten crime that threatened to ignite a blood war on the colonial frontier. At the founding of this colony in the late 1600s, the indigenous population of coastal South Carolina consisted of more than a dozen small tribes scattered along the seaboard from Cape Fear to the Savannah River. Most of these disparate people spoke a common language, and historians have described them collectively as the Kusabo people. They were generally friendly to the newcomers, but prolonged contact with European settlers and their imported diseases and vices caused the Kusabo population to decline steadily in the later years of the 17th century and the early years of the 18th century. By the time of the Yamasee War of 1715 through 1717, which was instigated by a tribe that had migrated northward from Florida, the South Carolina militia recruited the small number of remaining friendly Kusabo to push the rebellious Yamasee and their allies out of the colony. In the aftermath of that bloody conflict, both the European and Native population of Colleton County and what is now Buford County had fled to the relative safety of Charleston and dispersed farther to the north. White settlers slowly returned to the southern counties of South Carolina in the 1720s, and by the 1730s, the wilderness south and west of Charleston was entering a more peaceful era. Extensive land grants awarded by the colonial government drew scores of aspiring planters, and the transformation of natural swamps into landscaped rice fields began in earnest. Into this scene entered a new entity, a small group of refugee Indians that South Carolinians called the Nachi. Although barely remembered here today, this humble band represented one of the last surviving branches of the Natchez tribe of Mississippi, formerly one of the largest and most prosperous tribes in the American South. As French soldiers and colonists pressed further into the Mississippi River Valley in the 1720s, the Natchez fought violently to maintain their ancestral lands. The French retaliated with a war of extermination in 1729 and drove the tribe's few survivors eastward. The first band of Nachi or Natchez refugees came to Charleston in company with a Chickasaw delegation in July of 1733, at which time the local newspaper noted that the Nachi had come, quote, to pay their compliments to His Excellency, our governor some of them having traveled near 900 miles, end quote. Nine months later, in April of 1734, 
the king of the Nauchis, a nation of Western Indians, faithful friends to this province, arrived in urban Charleston with a retinue of 26 warriors to seek permission to settle in South Carolina. After negotiating with Governor Robert Johnson and his cabinet, the Nauchi accepted an invitation from a visiting band of Creek Indians to hold a dance on the lawn of the governor's mansion, later called Belvedere Plantation, on the neck. The next day, while still encamped at the governor's house, the Creek and the Nauchi played, quote, an Indian game with ball and rackets, 13 on a side, in which they showed great strength and agility, end quote. The provincial government was happy to welcome these settlement Indians, as they called them, because they had ample cause to despise His Majesty's traditional enemy, the French. During the mid-1730s, an unknown number of Nachi or Natchez Indians settled on the fringes of the South Carolina frontier, mostly in the wilds of Colleton County, there being no other tribes in that area to contest their arrival. Around the same time, another small band of refugee Indians began lurking on the frontier about 40 or 50 miles inland from the coastline. The P.D. tribe were first noticed by early colonists as living in the northeastern corners of South Carolina, but by the 1730s, through some unknown chain of events, they had been greatly reduced in numbers and were looking for a new home. In March of 1738, several Nachi Indians came to Charleston to ask permission to settle with a small group of P.D. Indians then living near the plantation of James Coachman in the vicinity of the Four Hole Swamp. Mr. Coachman expressed his willingness to sell 100 acres of good corn land to the provincial government, and Lieutenant Governor William Bull recommended the legislature accept this offer. Bull believed that the quiet settlement of those Indians along the frontier of white colonists would be of service to this province on several occasions, both in the present and in the future. Accordingly, in late March 1738, the South Carolina provincial government purchased James Coachman's 100 acres to create a permanent reservation for the Nachi and Pedi Indians near the swamp known as the Four Holes. Four Hole Swamp is a sprawling wetlands area filled with ancient cypress and tupelo forests, stretching more than 60 miles across the modern counties of Calhoun, Orangeburg, Berkeley, and Dorchester, where it then flows into the upper Edisto River. The exact location of the Nachi Reservation of 1738 is unclear today, but anyone who's interested in pursuing that line of inquiry through the voluminous property records of colonial South Carolina is welcome to make a discovery. The 1738 deed of sale includes a small plat of the property in question, but that drawing is devoid of any landmarks that might help us to pin down its precise location. For the moment, however, let's place this reservation roughly 35 to 40 miles northwest of Charleston, somewhere south of the Bidler Forest Reserve in modern Berkeley County, and somewhere north of Gavans Ferry State Park on the Edisto River in modern Dorchester County. The Nachi who settled in South Carolina in the 1730s represented a small branch of what was once a proud and mighty nation, 
But here, they were newcomers without much clout or strength. Thanks to the ravages of the earlier Yamasee War, their arrival did not displace or crowd any other tribe in the relatively vacant neighborhoods of Colleton County or Four Hole Swamp. Farther west and north, however, there were certainly other indigenous peoples in South Carolina, including the great Cherokee and Catawba nations, whose traditional homelands were then far beyond the frontier of European settlement during the early decades of colonial South Carolina. As white colonists began spreading farther westward in the early 1730s, contact between white settlers and the Cherokee, Catawba, and other inland tribes became more frequent. The arrival of the Nachi in the mid-1730s coincided with our government's first concerted efforts to open diplomatic channels of communications with the Western tribes. By the early 1740s, the people of Charleston had grown accustomed to seeing Native American delegations arrive from the interior to meet the royal governor for carefully staged formal talks. The Catawba people are one of the most significant populations of Native Americans in the history of South Carolina. For centuries, their traditional homelands included a large swath of country around the Catawba River, straddling what is now the border between South and North Carolina. Their periodic southward forays towards the Low Country apparently brought them into contact with the remnants of the Nachi people around the Four Hole Swamp. Both tribes had pledged their loyalty to South Carolina's colonial government, which sought to protect the young colony from French or Spanish incursion by encouraging a sense of fraternal solidarity between the various Indian nations. Despite these political efforts, some sort of jealousy or conflict developed between the Nachi and the Catawba, or at least a few of their tribesmen, in the early 1740s. The root of this tension has never been identified, to my knowledge, but at least some people living at that time recognized some sort of palpable uneasiness between the small band of refugee Nachi and the powerful, well-established Catawba. Whatever the cause of this malaise, the busy colonial government took no notice until after a violent rupture took place. In the summer of 1744, some distinguished members of the Nachi tribe invited the Catawba to come southward to renew their friendship with a small celebration at the Nachi PD Reservation near Four Hole Swamp. A Catawba delegation comprised of about a dozen or so men and women arrived on either the 16th or the 17th of July, and a grand Indian feast ensued. Now, the sale of alcohol to Indians was illegal at that time, but nevertheless, a man named William Patton, the proprietor of a trading post in that area, provided a large quantity of rum for this festive occasion. The Nachi men were reputed to be fond of the intoxicating spirits, but on this particular evening, they declined to partake, insisting that the Catawba guests should have all the rum they desired. It seemed like a generous, hospitable gesture at the time, but in reality, their abstinence was part of a fiendish plot that was about to unfold. After an evening of alcohol-fueled merrymaking, the Catawba were sleeping peacefully in a drunken stupor, but the sober Nachi were restless. 
In the dead of the night, two of the Nachi men unsheathed their tribal weapons and attacked the Catawba, mangling their bodies in a barbarous manner and killing five to ten of them. Contemporary reports disagree about the precise number of victims, but I think it's likely that some died on the spot and some died later of their wounds. The motivation for this act of mass murder was never discovered, but Governor James Glenn later said that some of the Nachi, quote, had for a considerable time been at variance with some of the Catawbas and had invited them down to Four Hole Swamp as a pretense of being reconciled, though really with a design to destroy them, end quote. Whatever the motivation the Nachi men attacked their pretended friends with savage violence during the night. Several Catawba women and two men escaped the carnage and fled back to their nation, while the murderers disappeared into the swamp and went into hiding. White settlers in the neighborhood soon heard about the crime, and the veteran Catawba trader, Thomas Brown, immediately sent a letter to Governor James Glenn in Charleston. By the 25th of July, four P.D. Indians and a white man, Matthew Beard of Goose Creek, had arrived in town to brief the governor in person. Governor Glenn was a shrewd politician, and although he had just arrived in South Carolina seven months earlier, he immediately realized that a diplomatic crisis was at hand. Action had to be taken immediately to prevent a full-blown frontier war. Both the powerful Catawba and the refugee Nachi tribes were important allies in South Carolina's efforts to keep guard against their traditional enemies, the Spanish and the French, as well as the Native American tribes allied to those European powers. A violent rift between the tribes allied to the British, especially those residing so close to the colonial frontier, had the potential to both injure white settlers and to create an opportunity for His Majesty's enemies to invade through the weakened backcountry. Thomas Brown, an experienced trader intimately familiar with the Catawba culture, warned Governor Glenn that a party of Catawba warriors would soon arrive to revenge the blood of their people. Glenn sent express letters to the Catawba leader, whom he called the Little Warrior, to assure him that the South Carolina government would launch an investigation into the murders. Satisfaction for this crime would be made, Glenn assured him, but not in the traditional manner. Instead of allowing the Catawba to seek an eye for an eye, Governor Glenn begged the tribal leaders to stand down their warriors and to let the governor negotiate a peaceful but fitting resolution. If he did not succeed within a few months, Glenn said he would step aside and permit the Catawba chief, quote, to use the Nachi as he thought proper, end quote. Meanwhile, Governor Glenn summoned Will, the king of the Nachi, to come to Charleston for a face-to-face conference. In the immediate aftermath of the murders, the Nachi people fled southward from their reservation at Four Hole Swamp and dispersed into the wilderness. They feared being caught up in a blood war with a powerful Catawba, whom they expected to seek vengeance on the refugee Nachi tribe in general for the crimes committed by just two men. Sometime in August of 1744, King Will arrived in town with his family, including a son who understood English. 
during a week's residence at the governor's suburban mansion, the Nachi king listened patiently to Governor Glenn's appeal for a new type of justice that he hoped would prevent an escalation of violence. Glenn later wrote that he succeeded in convincing the Nachi, quote, not only of the iniquity and baseness of the action, that is, the mass murder, but of the justness of punishing it and the necessity of having it done without delay, end quote. King Will said that Glenn's words made a very great impression upon him and agreed that his people should assist the provincial government in its quest for justice. Nevertheless, he remained skeptical about the chances of the governor's plan succeeding. The two Nachi men who were responsible for the massacre were not just rogue juvenile delinquents or a fringe element of the tribe. Rather, they were considerable men with the Nachi band, whose families would likely think it their duty to kill anyone who attempted to bring the two men to justice. By the end of their week-long conference in late August of 1744, however, the Nachi king assured Governor Glenn that he would do everything in his power to ensure that his people followed the new path of justice outlined by the governor. As the autumn of 1744 settled over the Low Country, the temporary truce negotiated by Governor James Glenn receded into the background of the white people's consciousness. Britain and its colonies were then at war with their Spanish neighbors, and a diplomatic rupture with France was about to broaden the conflict into a veritable world war. Closer to home, the annual rice harvest commenced across the coastal settlements of South Carolina and most of the colony carried on as if oblivious to the possibility of a local Indian war. In the deep background of this landscape, however, the Nachi people maintained a vigilant lookout for the two rogue warriors who had sullied their good name. As winter arrived, the murderers emerged from hiding and cautiously attempted to rejoin their tribal band at a campsite near the headwaters of the Ashapu River, in Colleton County. Governor Glenn had personally promised the Catawba justice, but in reality, he expected the Nachi to deliver up their own tribesmen. With the honor and survival of his people at stake, the Nachi king decided to take matters into his own hands. He devised a plot to ensnare the two Toms, as he called them, and to deliver their severed heads to the governor of South Carolina. Tune in next week for the dramatic conclusion of this story, when we'll learn how the Nachi king sacrificed two of his own men to prevent the destruction of his refugee band, how Governor James Glenn reacted when a messenger delivered a bloody bag to his doorstep in January 1745, and how the Catawba nation reacted when they received the pickled heads of the two toms. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org.
Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.